Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Doing live in-person events is off the table for a while, but we're still doing conversations with Californians doing groundbreaking things during this pandemic time. So here is our new podcast series, The New Normal in California. Over the next few weeks, or however long it takes before we get the all clear to leave our houses again, we'll be looking at the ways our coronavirus-affected lives are changing over the short and long term, and talking with Californians making significant change in this new normal. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep producing more of these, consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast hub page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In episode number one of this series, we talked with a UC Davis epidemiologist about how COVID-19 got its start. In this episode, we're asking the question, how will it meet its end? How close are we to a COVID-19 vaccine? Will it kill it, or will it mutate and come back? In the meantime, should we start giving out immunity passports? Telling us what they know so far about all of this are two UC Davis medical researchers, Chris Miller and Nam Tran, who are part of the global team working round the clock on the race to create an effective vaccine. Join us for a conversation with Dr. Miller and Dr. Tram about COVID-19, how they're fighting it, what methods they're testing to stop it in its tracks, and whether we can hope for an ultimate cure. Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers live in the remote podcast recording studio. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of California Groundbreakers. I'm here along with Caleb Clark, audio engineer extraordinaire, who's in charge of sound quality and editing this podcast so that we all sound great. Welcome to episode two of our podcast series, Coronavirus in California, Is This the New Normal? And this episode is also part two of a look at the specific coronavirus we're all focusing on right now, COVID-19. We started first with, how did this thing get started? And that was an interview with UC Davis, Dr. Christine Croyder-Johnson, who's looking at animal to human transmissions of viruses, which what is what COVID-19 most likely is. And now for this episode, we're going to look at how do we end this thing? Will it ever end? I think I speak for many when I say that I'm, I can't wait for it to end. I want to get out of the house. But for that to happen, uh, according to public health officials, we need uh, obviously a lot more testing. We need monitoring. And we do need ideally uh, a, a cure, a vaccine, something that will uh, kill this thing or make it dormant or something that's along the lines of how we experience uh, other coronaviruses and the flu. So joining me today to talk about how do we end this thing, will it ever end, are two people who are working on on those questions right now and actually making it happen. So I want to introduce Chris Miller, who's a virologist at UC Davis, and also Nam Tram, who's Senior Director of Clinical Pathology at UC Davis Health. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks. Thanks very much. So I'm going to start with a question for each of you, actually for both of you, but to answer one at a time. And that's basically just getting a little bit, a little 
information about both of you, how you got into this field. It is uh, a very specialized field. It's a very distinct field. It's obviously a field we're all watching right now. We're all waiting for you to come up with uh, a vaccine to cure this thing. But uh, was this this field in terms of virology and clinical pathology uh, something that you have been wanting to do ever since you were a kid? Did you fall into it? Just a little bit background uh, about how you uh, got to where you are today working on uh, a vaccine. So Chris, I just wanted to start with you. How did you become a virologist? Um, okay, I started as a wanting to be a veterinarian. And when I entered vet school in the mid 80s, uh, the AIDS epidemic broke out. So I was um, exposed to a lot of virology while I was training as a veterinarian. And uh, that um, sparked my interest in virology. And I've been a virologist ever since. And Nam, what about you? Yeah, so I kind of fell into this uh, clinical pathology field. I was trained by one of the fathers of point of care testing. For those that don't know, point of care testing is kind of that you know diagnostic at the bedside. And part of my PhD training, which believe it or not, was with our vet school at UC Davis. So that's kind of where I got introduced to some of the stuff that uh, Chris's group and others were doing. I was focused on molecular infectious diseases, so detecting these viruses and bacteria using these novel DNA and RNA-based tests and kind of expanded from there. And then I kind of uh, took a break from that, became a clinical chemist running the lab. And of course, now we're worried about viruses again. So we're using those technologies today from what I did back in the day in the PhD training. So the reason I had both Chris and Nam here uh, is because I, I read a story uh, at CalMatters, which full disclosure, that's my day job. I work full-time at CalMatters putting on uh, events, uh, virtual events now. We're talking about coronavirus too. But there was a really interesting story uh, by a reporter, Rachel Becker, and it had the title, Drop Everything. And it was basically a story about how a lot of scientific research in California and obviously across the country and the world are on hold if it's not having to do with uh, fighting COVID-19. And she started the story with Nam calling Chris and saying, Chris, basically drop everything. Stop working on what you're doing right now. I want you to join my team because we're looking at uh, fighting COVID-19 and how we do it. So I wanted to ask you first, Chris, what, what were you working on before? Why did you get that call from from Nam. And then, Nam, I want you to tell us why you called Chris and what you wanted him to help you with what to join your team. Um, okay, so my lab is focused on developing interventions for human pathogens, um, influenza, herpes viruses, AIDS, HIV AIDS, um, a number of other viruses. But in the last few years, we've been focused on influenza to a large extent. Um, so that was our primary um, sort of entree into a respiratory disease virology like coronaviruses. And then, Nam, you called Chris. You told him to drop everything. Why? What, what did you need him for? What, did, what are you working yeah. on? So, uh, you know, for the most part, as we went down the pathway of building up our diagnostic testing capability at UC Davis Health, we knew uh, three things we need to uh, address. The first is uh, we only had one patient at the time, as you, we all saw in the media. So that means we only had one positive sample to really truly evaluate how our test would work. And you know we want to make sure our test is you know state of the art. And so having that sample, we knew we had to find someone who can grow the virus in uh, large numbers, but also from a research perspective, having had that background uh, from our program at Davis uh, connected with the vet school, is that we need you know those people that are doing that 
fundamental research, vaccines, treatments, they need to be able to have that virus to start um, evaluating, whether at the viral level, you know, the virus itself, or even at animal models and, and so forth. So there's only one place that was on my radar, which was the, uh, at the time, in my head, it was called the Center for Comparative Medicine, but today it's been called the uh, Center for Immunology and Infectious Diseases. And so it's uh, it was easy to know who to call. And then we were connected with Chris Miller and the name kind of flagged in my mind. I remember that name from somewhere only to realize that was because my uh, classmate who was ahead of me in my PhD training uh, still works for Chris at the time. So we, we still had that connection. And, and of course, um, that individual also played a big role in culturing the virus too. So we, uh, for the standpoint of them culturing it for us in the laboratory side, we knew that we'll have access to effectively an unlimited source of viruses to test our, te uh, our, test, our tests and perhaps also develop novel new diagnostic tests moving forward too. And I am going to ask you about that patient, the the one you mentioned up there at the beginning. Um, later on, uh, I have a question because uh, the patient treated at UC Davis that you're, I think you're mentioning, was the first community acquired case of COVID nineteen in the U.S. Is that is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, it's been published in um, I think in clinical infectious diseases uh, as that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question about that person uh, later. In terms of, uh, I guess the global. The global race to, to create a vaccine, uh, there's a little, been a lot of news stories about how, again, uh, scientists and researchers everywhere are dropping everything to, to work on uh, a cure and a vaccine. And it seems like there are uh, research teams that are working separately, but also together in collabor collaborative efforts. And I was wondering where UC Davis fits in in terms of you know who you're working with at UC Davis, but also who are you working with in collaboration, if you are, uh, across the U.S. and even worldwide, and how is how are those efforts going so far? Sure, I guess I could start. Um, this is uh, a broad worldwide effort, as you just described it. There are investigators that are funded on at UC Davis, specifically Dennis Hardigan O'Connor who has a grant to do HIV vaccine development, and he's been supplemented on that grant to start uh, also developing um, COVID-19 vaccines. So um, there are people on campus developing individual vaccines, but in addition, we've been approached by a number of companies and other investigators at other institutions to see if we have an animal model to develop, a, uh, to test their vaccines in. And the usual pathway for vaccine development is to identify a candidate vaccine by looking at the virus and trying to decide what pieces of the virus you need to add to make a uh, vaccine that'll be elicit a protective immune response. And then you take that candidate vaccine into small animals and evaluate that immune response and see if it's making the kind of response that you want to protect you against the virus. And then once you've done that, you take it into non-human primates where you can uh, more closely judge the type of immune response that will be elicited in humans. Um, and then you hopefully do a challenge study in the monkeys where you see if the vaccine can actually protect the monkeys against the challenge. So, and then after that, you go into people and see if it's safe and finally effective in people. So in that pathway, we're trying to set up the animal model systems for people to test their vaccines. And the first step, for me, as a primate virologist, is to set up the non-human primate model so we can test vaccines there. Um, but in addition, I'm helping s uh, other virologists on campus set up n small animal models so that we can have a pipeline to take things from the test tube to the mouse 
to the monkey and eventually over to NAMS uh, clinical side where we can test it in people. So we've tried to set that up and we've been able to um, recruit the other uh, investigators and professors required to set that structure up in over in just about the last week. So we think we have a pretty much uh, bench to bedside pipeline now for vaccines and uh, investigators with novel ideas can plug in at the very basic science stage and companies with more um, clinic ready ideas or at least advanced animal testing ideas can plug in at the monkey stage. And we've already had inquiries from, as I said, a number of companies, but also Johns Hopkins and uh, Duke University and a number of other universities as well, uh, where people have, uh, many of them have been developing influenza vaccines and they're repurposing those platforms to address the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and and now on your side, uh, global, U.S. efforts, global efforts with your team. Yeah, so uh, obviously we're we're you know waiting and receiving you know various uh, drug trials, for example. So those drug trials coming from vaccine wise, you know we're still waiting for the, these novel vaccines to come. I'm aware of uh, several studies are ongoing uh, where they are testing the safety of these vaccines, early candidates, and so forth. And you know the challenge with these is we have to wait to see how they work and as they scale up as um, uh, Chris pointed out that we have to show safety first before we can show efficacy, meaning that efficacy that you actually have immunity. So that takes time. And, you know, I know a lot of people are anxious, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably one of the people that have not been exposed yet, fortunately. Um, but at the same time, uh, being exposed and, uh, uh, you know, doing well after exposure also uh, confers um, a good chance of immunity that makes people feel a bit better thereafter. But yeah, the vaccine is a very important question. And of course, paralleling with the drug trials and also all the diagnostic tests that are coming out now too. So let's see if we can visualize how a vaccine would work uh, on a podcast. For me, it's been very useful to uh, see that image of uh, the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, that the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, has put out. That gray fuzzy ball with the red corona spikes of the uh, COVID-19 on top. It looks really ugly. It looks very lethal, but it helps me to understand how those spikes, or I guess the receptors, uh, latch onto healthy cells. And then I just, I think it's great when uh, I read stories with the visuals about how it enters a respiratory system and how those spikes, you know, act like keys that fit into our cells, key locks. So in terms of looking at that visually and creating a, a vaccine or a cure, it sounds like you also have to come up with something that will latch on to a coronavirus, use its receptors to get into the, the, the virus and, and kill it. I'm wondering if there's a way for you when you're looking at, okay, how do we, how do we figure out something that'll work and how molecularly it should be structured so it will get the coronavirus um, uh, at its you know, heart or whatever, or its receptors. What, what does it look like? Or you know, how, how does it, when it latches on to healthy cells of coronavirus, how do you create a vaccine that will latch onto it? Is there a way to describe it um, in terms of how you see a potential virus working visually? Uh, a vaccine working visually, yeah. Um, I think that spike, uh, that figure you described from CDC is uh, pretty compelling. And the uh, spikes that you described sticking out from the 
uh, surface of the virus particle are actually called the spike protein of the coronavirus. And that spike protein is what interacts with the cell receptor, which is the um, acetylcholinesterase receptor on the host cell. And what a vaccine, the simplest, most straightforward kind of vaccines hope to do is make antibodies that coat the spike so that the spike can't interact with that host cell protein. And if it does that, the virus is what we call neutralized because it can't uh, infect its target cell. And that would um, hopefully block virus replication and allow the vaccinated person to clear the virus infection faster. So that's visually how you kind of um, describe how a vaccine works. What about you, Nam? Is that is there anything else that you want to say about that? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a very important distinction. The spike protein is actually where you also want to make sure any tests that look for your immunity produces those same antibodies that cover, coat, and block that spike protein from doing its job you know, for the, the virus to infect you, right? Because there's going to be a lot of antibodies our, our body produces that will coat the virus, but not all of them may be doing either uh, the right job, the effective job to actually prevent viral infection. And of course, i.e. meaning that it will confer immunity. I asked a few California Groundbreakers listeners and uh, uh, e-newsletter subscribers a few days ago uh, to, to come up with questions for you two and see what they wanted to hear and, and what questions they wanted answered. So uh, one I got, uh, it's an anonymous question from uh, B Bear Brass, Just shout out to her or him. This person wanted to know, does placing items in the sunshine kill the coronavirus? If so, for how long? And I think that refers to a lot of the information we've been reading about how long the coronavirus lasts on, on various surfaces and also how long it lasts in, in heat. Now that the weather's warming up, uh, summer's coming, typically it seems like other uh, viruses like the flu die down, lie dormant. Um, do you have a sense of how heat Will it kill the coronavirus or, or stop it or slow it down? Uh, and, and I guess part two of that, you know, what do you know so far about uh, this coronavirus uh, in terms of factors that will help or hinder it? What do you not know that you need to know? Chris. Okay. Um, good question, I guess. Um, so there's a lot we don't know about this particular virus. The only really controlled studies that have been done have looked at how long it takes for the virus to become inactivated if left on a surface in room temperature kind of conditions. And then we know that the virus, depending on the surface, if it's a stainless steel, can live for three days at the most uh, on paper or cardboard, although we don't know exactly what kind, it's about 24 hours. So if we alter the environmental conditions, the temperature and humidity, then those will change. Um, how they will change exactly, we don't know with this virus. Um, it may be that it's similar to flu in that the virions are less uh, stable when it gets warmer and drier. But we don't know that for now, right now, and that would be a mistake to assume that. And the other important kind of point to understand about um, the seasonality of respiratory viruses, like influenza, for example, is that although it may be summer here, and the virus may, influenza, for example, may not be replicating here very well. It's winter in Australia and New Zealand and south of the equator in South America and South Africa, and it's replicating great down there. 
So even if coronavirus turns out to be a seasonal virus, that just means it's going to switch hemispheres with the seasons. It doesn't mean it's going away. It's just moving locations. It's going to summer somewhere else and winter somewhere else. So I think that that's sort of a, you know, important idea to get across is that even if there is a seasonal decline in virus infectivity in this country, it's going to pick up in Australia and New Zealand. And then next year, next fall, it's going to come back here when the uh, weather gets cold again. And just to give you some historical insight into this phenomenon, you know, if it is a seasonal virus like flu, uh, the pandemic flu that came out in 1918 had the same phenomenon. It emerged in the spring in the United States. It went away in the summer in the United States, and then it came back in the fall in the United States. So that's the worst case scenario, but that's what we have to be ready for now. And more recently, the 2009 flu pandemic that emerged out of Mexico in March also was in the United States since that spring, went away in the summer, and came back that fall, just like we might expect the coronavirus to do. So if it goes away in summer due to heat and, humi and um, changes in humidity, depends on where you live, how humid it is, um, then we should be not surprised if it comes back in fall uh, when it starts to get colder and drier. So are environmental factors something that you are, uh, that aren't, worth testing in many ways for this one based on, you know, he could not do anything. Um, like what are the factors in terms of testing that are very important right now that you're looking at to see what works and what doesn't work? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're not um, in the business of looking at what it activates virus or not, but certainly that's a big field, environmental virology and understanding uh, how to safely inactivate virus on medical equipment and on sur surfaces and all that sort of thing. Um, and certainly the standard approaches to uh, sterilizing equipment work fine for this virus. This is an unusually uh, resistant virus in terms of its ability to resist heat or cold or anything like that, or detergents or bleach or alcohol. It's very sensitive. But um, so you know, that whole ability to exist on surfaces is not unusual in terms of what we see in viruses. But I think kind of what you were getting at is, well, if it gets to be summer and it gets hot, it's going to go away. And that may be true, but it's not going away. Where it lives is in people. And so there's people in the Southern Hemisphere who it's winter, and it's going to be happily living in them, waiting for it to come back to us. So it may be on surfaces, but it doesn't live on surfaces. And it go, it's inactivated relatively quickly on most surfaces. That kind of help? Yeah. That does. And I guess uh, uh, the same question for you, Nam, in terms of what you are testing and looking at, uh, what are factors that you're testing and, and are, you're seeing as these are very important ones that could be uh, potential, potentially helpful for vaccine, or is it too early to tell? Well, I think like what we're testing right now is there's two arms, right? There, right now we're doing the diagnostic testing and saying that you have uh, COVID-19 or not. That's A, right? That's our molecular test. When we say molecular, it means that we're targeting the, the virus's RNA. Uh, but we're soon in the coming days to deploy our own serology testing, which actually includes some of these new antibody tests that will be able to target that spike protein. So what's important about that is we can potentially quantify that spike protein or the antibodies against the spike protein to then say, yes, uh, this is a, that's the better antibody that's trying to confer immunity. But also importantly, um, there can be mechanisms to help us evaluate the use of that so-called convalescent serum, where you know, we're taking uh, the serum from people who have survived COVID-19 
and then transferring those antibodies, that immunity to someone else to help treat or prevent a severity of COVID-19 infection. So those are things that are being uh, aggressively evaluated. Obviously, our diagnostic tests are supporting that and our blood bank and transfusion medicine teams are, are looking at that convalescence serum story. And I know they're working with uh, Chris's group too in that area. And that does tie into another question I got from uh, Groundbreakers listener, Michelle Sherwood. She did want to know, what is serology testing? And is this the answer to ending quarantine? Because this ties into uh, some new stories that are coming out now about, quote unquote, immunity passports that countries, I guess a few in Europe are thinking, considering giving out to people who pass certain tests and have uh, uh, coronavirus antibodies and so they can go to work and, and uh, get out of the house. So immunity passports, that seems a little, still a little new, maybe a little controversial. So I guess part one is what is serology testing that you had mentioned now? And a little more specifics about that in terms of testing for what, and then could that sure. lead to so, uh, immunity now, serology testing not new uh, it's, for it's, people? We, we do to, it for many other things. To go and out and, for those and that go more. into new employments, they ask you, especially in healthcare, they ask you, "Hey, can you get your or have your records of your vaccinations?" And they test you to see how much antibodies you're producing, and, that, and that's an example right there. We're looking at your antibodies against say, measles, mumps, rubella. Um, we can do uh, serology testing for HIV. So we actually look for HIV one and two antibodies that we produce against those viruses. Uh, so that's not new. And, but the, um, the concept of that is effective. I just want to measure your body's host response against that one particular virus. And hopefully these are antibodies, like I said, neutralizing antibodies that effectively uh, confer immunity. And that can, um, uh, can stay um, consistent over time or it can, get, um, it can reduce over time where you may need a booster shot. Hence that name comes up for some vaccinations. Um, from, for in terms of the um, immunity passports and so forth, that's a tougher question. And I think a lot of people out there, the media has really pushed the story about how this is the... Um, panacea to to determine if you have it or not but there's something that most people don't appreciate and it's a more of a statistical probabilistic uh, consideration is that uh, regardless of the type of test to use and the better test yes you want a good test but there's something called what's called predictive values and um I'll try to explain it pretty uh, as, as, as lay uh, terms as possible is that even the best tests we have right now, and these are tests that are even better than what's being reported by other countries that are bringing these in. If I were to assume that 10% of our population has COVID-19, I test a thousand patients, a hundred of those will be positive. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but the reality is based on the performance of these tests right now, of those 100 that would test positive, I can only say with good certainty that 77 of those actually have immunity. That is not perfect, right, as you can imagine. And that number changes. So if the, the number of prevalence of, of COVID-19 increases, your ability to predict is a lot better. A good analogy to this is that if I were to ask you to stick your arm into a jar full of marbles. Uh, there are uh, 999 white marbles and there's only one blue marble. Your chances of pulling out blindly that one blue marble is very low. Now, if that marble, blue marble was now 50% of that uh, jar, so 500 blue marbles and 500 white marbles, your chances are pretty darn good to find that, um, you know, that blue marble in that, that jar. So effectively, as the number of COVID-19 infections, by analogy, those blue marbles increase, your chances of testing correctly also increases. So I think that's where folks don't really appreciate that these tests aren't perfect. Even if with the best tests that are out there today, the positive result doesn't fully mean that you're 100% immune. 
And we have to be careful about that. Other things to consider is that some of these early uh, serology tests, they cross-react, meaning that they could give you a positive result, but it wasn't for COVID-19, not for SARS-CoV-2. It was because you were exposed to one of the four less severe human coronaviruses that are out there. You could have been a person that was exposed to SARS, the original SARS from ages ago too. So there's a lot of concerns out there, especially these little rapid tests that you see in the media, they may not be that great. So we have to go with caution and really trust these large academic labs that have done very aggressive evaluations to pick the right test to help uh, evaluate the community. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more New Normal in California podcasts literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab on the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Also, if you know of a Californian doing some innovative thing during this pandemic time who should be talking about it with us on this podcast, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org to give us information about who, where, and why so we can get in touch. We're always looking to get the word out about Groundbreakers who people should know about and support. I wanted to ask you about a couple of experimental drugs that the names I'm, I'll probably be tripping on as I ask you about them. But the first one is called remdesivir. And again, referring to the patient you had talked about earlier um, in the podcast, the patient that you treated at UC Davis, that person uh, was the first community-acquired case of COVID-19 in the U.S., which meant she hadn't traveled abroad and brought it back. She, she acquired it here in the U.S. And I think there was a study that uh, UC Davis released uh, publicly about testing remdesivir. So I was wondering how, what are the results so far of remdesivir? How uh, does that look uh, as a viable potential cure for COVID-19? Well, data looks promising. Uh, I would I say that because, you know, obviously at UC Davis, we had only one patient. That data has to be taken as a whole, right? Because, you know, we can't just make our, our assessment on one patient. But uh, based on what we've seen, I think the numbers are, I think there's been about uh, quite a good number of patients so far. The data looks promising. People are hopeful, but they don't want to make any conclusions yet. You know, that's one of the challenges with drug trials because we have to have large numbers to really make a much more population-based determination uh, to see how those work. But so far, it is promising. Okay. And then the other one, hydroxychloroquine. Am I saying that right? I think that one has gotten a lot of attention because President Trump has been mentioning that in uh, daily press briefings about why not try that out. So your thoughts, both of you, about hydroxychloroquine, is that also hydroxychloroquine, is that a potential uh, something for a, a cure or remedy? Yeah, so it's a little bit different. So I think for the most part, I'll, I'll contrast it with Redepsevir real, real quick. You know, there's, there's actually a recent publication. Actually, I think it was today or yesterday. But, I mean, they looked at 53 patients, and they had a 10-day course. Results are that about 68% of these patients showed significant improvement, right? So in contrast, on the other hand, with uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, pretty much – uh, it's uh, take with caution. I know uh, Dr. Fauci on, on you know, uh, during the press conference has stated that there are um, contraindications or at least 
treat with caution in patients with cardio, uh, cardiovascular issues, et cetera. But there's also, for the most part, where there's, it's been quoted that, for, uh, for example, hydroxychloroquine uh, being used in COVID-19, it actually didn't, uh, didn't meet the International Society for Antimicrobial, um, Antimicrobial Chemotherapy's expected standards. So right now, um, there, there's, there's concern on the effectiveness of that drug, and I think go with caution, right? I know there's been people that have been treated. There's people that probably did well with it, but there's also a lot of, of on the other end of the spectrum, um, serious outcomes, adverse issues, serious adverse events that can come from uh, this drug. So we, you know, go with caution. That's the emphasis. One of the interesting things about both of these drugs is they're antivirals, which are supposed to directly affect virus replication. But when the patients, you can't take enough samples to carefully, or it's difficult to take enough samples to carefully measure the effects of the drugs on virus replication. So we're relying on clinical endpoints. Do they get better clinically? Do they get out of the ICU? And if they do, that's great, but we really can't say that the drug lowered the virus replication and that's what led them to get out of the ICU. So that's one use of the animal models that we're developing, is that with monkeys, we can treat them with the same drugs, measure the virus replication much more carefully, and say, yeah, we, these drugs definitely affect virus replication, and that leads to better clinical outcomes. And that would provide that link for the clinicians to understand what they're doing and give them more confidence to go ahead uh, with those trials, give them a mechanistic basis for the drug uh, interventions that they're attempting in people. And Chris, are you testing those out right now? We're getting ready to try some of them, yeah. Okay. How long does it typically take to create a vaccine when you have the time and the, well, the time and luxury, so to speak? How long does it typically take? Um, I guess I'll start. Yeah. Well, this is the fastest any vaccine has ever been developed in the history of man. Let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, the steps are to identify the virus, identify the pieces of the virus that you think will be most likely to confer protection, and then to start making ways to present those pieces to the person so that their immune system can respond to them. So right now we have, I was just looking at a review paper, we probably have 20 different vaccine platforms that are going into people right now with those antigens um, expressed in some way um, and being expressed in those people. And so this is incredibly fast from having the virus be identified in December to having it a vaccine starting to go into people in April. Nothing like that has ever happened before. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, because usually it's, it's one or two years, uh, or I guess for the ones that, uh, that have been created for past coronaviruses like, uh, well, Ebola, uh, SARS, have they been a couple of years in the making? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really uh, hard to give this a historical precedent because mm. you know, the, the real era of modern vaccine making started with HIV and all the frustrations of trying to make those vaccines. And that frustration led to the development of a whole series of different molecular techniques to make different types of vaccines. And they're all molecular-based, and so they're very, they can be rapidly changed and adapted to new viruses, and that's what is being over the years, what was adopted to the first SARS, what was adopted to MERS, what's adopted to Ebola, all those are variations on the platforms that were started with HIV. And now they've been refined with these other viruses. And so now those platforms are being, you know, re-engineered in three months to be able to start human clinical trials. And I, then 
this question may be for you uh, specifically now, but Chris, you can answer too. In terms of humans, I, there was a, a question from a groundbreaker member, Diana C., uh, about humans, you know, the human trials and her concern, you know, about being a guinea pig in this, you know, the fastest race to create a vaccine. You know, there's a rush could that lead to big problems? I, I, I think that was interesting. A couple, well, last month, I read a story about uh, a trial going on up in Seattle. And there was a, the first person who got, uh, I guess it was a, like a shot, like a flu shot or similar type of uh, entryway. It was a healthy uh, 40-something woman, uh, Seattle, who said, you know, I, I really, I have no qualms. I, I want to be part of this. And uh, she was the first one to get the vaccination or, or to get the test. Okay. And so far I, I've heard that she's uh, doing okay, but I'm, I guess, yes, in terms of this is the fastest race uh, ever, right. To get a vaccine for this. Um, what are the concerns if people who want to, the human trial, that's such a big, important part. What are the concerns that you may have about what could get dropped uh, in such a, um, a rush to, to make a, a vaccine that everybody wants. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's a fair question. I, I do want to say, you know, that, you know, I don't think guinea pigs are used too often as animal models anymore. I'll start <laughs> off with that one. Uh, but um, but the, the other end of the spectrum is uh, the nice thing with uh, what we've learned over the decades of experience. I will even go back to the 1940s. Uh, but um, uh, at least since 1978 and so forth, there's been a lot of new rules that were in place for human subject research. And I'll throw it in there too. The animal research size just as regulated uh, as that. So just to put it in that perspective. So the, uh, the effect, you know, we're looking for a beneficence. So how beneficial it is justice from the standpoint that, um, that the treatment, if proven to be helpful is uh, spread amongst equally amongst all demographics that are appropriate and so on. Um, and in fairness to persons. So those are the aspects of what really was called the Belmont Report that came out in um, during that time period and continue to evolve even to this day. But at the end of the day is when you're taking part in these studies, the FDA is obviously involved uh, and so forth. And you go through a process. You have to submit paperwork to show that this is uh, – safe in various animal species all the way up to non-human primates there has to be a uh, investigational new drug application that requires um, other steps to be you know to, to be submitted for the fda to evaluate and by then we finally get to the point where it goes to uh, clinical trials and early trials where you're being just dosed at low concentrations by analogy like drugs, to just look at safety, look at where the drug goes and so forth. We're not even dosing at high levels that are going to um, be uh, known to cause side effects, let alone um, have other issues. Those same processes are, yes, uh, where possible, accelerated, uh, but from the standpoint of getting enough numbers of people monitoring for safety, that doesn't change. And all of these studies require informed consent, meaning that you're, they're not just going to give you the drug without you knowing. That's a big thing since the 1940s, um, understanding that you can't be doing human experimentation without obtaining informed consent from an adult person, adult patient or, and or assent from a child. So children, there's, there's mechanisms for that to ensure the, um, the ethics, welfare, and safety of these um, individuals who are you know, all volunteers. They have to be explained to uh, about the risks associated with it. And there are safety mechanisms for all these trials. There are what are called data, data safety monitoring boards that routinely monitor the safety. If there are any changes in 
side effects, the study could be stopped. Alternatively, the study could be stopped for good reasons too, where we see that, wow, this drug is curing 100% of everyone who gets it. And that helps accelerate the drug out to, um, to market to be able to get the, um, you know, this uh, wonder drug out to help people. So those, it's a very regulated field, especially uh, with drugs and vaccines. And let me add a little more to that because um, vaccines are even more regulated than drugs because with vaccines, we're giving it to healthy people. With drugs, we're giving it to sick people. So there's a fundamental difference in the market there. And if you're giving something to healthy people, you better be really sure it's safe. So there's no way that the safety steps will ever be compromised in getting a uh, vaccine to market. There's no way that'll ever happen. And it's, you know, like they've said, it's based on the experience we have with um, some unethical, as we describe them now, human clinical trials that have uh, prevent us from ever allowing any of these steps uh, to be hurdled over. It just won't happen. Um, And so I'm, you know, as a vaccine developer, Obviously, with the anti-vax sort of um, mindset of some subset of our population, we're really sensitive to making sure that we first do no harm with a vaccine and making sure it's very, very safe. So that would happen again with this vaccine. Because it just seems like a a dilemma in a way. I mean, everyone is rooting for you. Everyone wants you to, I mean, medical experts uh, in your community to come up with a vaccine you know, like now, but then again, of course, they want it to be safe. You want to guarantee that it's safe. So it just seems like the, the speed, the time to market um, could be, a, to me, could be a factor where the pressure's on and you want to make sure everything's done right. But then again, you want to make sure you get it out there so that, you know. We can- so, so the pressure's on for regulators and investigators not to take Friday or Saturday or Sunday off to work seven days, 24 seven, but not to skip any of the steps to compress it, to work harder and faster, but not to skip steps. So that's the pressure. Um, And just to give you a current real world example of a vaccine causing a problem, there was a dengue virus uh, vaccine licensed by Sanofi Pasteur. And it was, there's three different flavors of dengue virus. And when you're infected with one, the immune response you get can make the next infection with the second flavor worse. So that's called um, antibody-induced enhancement of infection. And it turns out that the vaccine could do that same thing. If you give the vaccine to a kid that hasn't been infected before and they make a primary immune response and then they see the virus for the first time, that immune response from the vaccine actually makes the the primary uh, infection worse. So that was just discovered three or four years ago after a vaccine was licensed in in, uh, the Philippines. So now we're even triply careful about this whole phenomenon that there's stuff that we can't even imagine that can still have a role. And as a matter of fact, with coronavirus and the first set of coronavirus vaccines, there was some evidence of antibody-dependent enhancement in some of the SARS-1 vaccines in the animal model settings. So we're very aware of any potential problem. And as much as we want to get a vaccine that works, we can't have a vaccine that causes problems. So that's the first hurdle to overcome. And the second hurdle is if it works. So we're very aware of that. And there's, I mean, I can't stress enough how much that is on the radar of everybody in the field. Nam, I'm, I'm assuming you agree with that. You sound very calm and under control, uh, but in terms of pressure, you know, is that the same way that you're focusing on doing work, making sure everything is done safely, securely? 
Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, not, it's actually, oddly enough, not our first rodeo, at least on my side. We, we, we dealt with Ebola uh, back in 2015. So we know the, the flow. Now, with that said, this was this is obviously a lot, many times worse and more challenging than Ebola because of how long it's gone, right? The number of people, right? And those are the, those are things I do, um, do admit. But we also have to follow those same rules for bringing tests online. I think a lot of people early on, maybe seven weeks ago, uh, asked, you know, how fast could you bring a test up at UC Davis? I said, well, I technically we could take, bring a test up in about two days. <laughs> we, we, we could, but at the same time, we have to follow the same rules that FDA, the Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services, and the CDC prescribe. And this is what we do every day, right? And, you know, some people may argue, well, you know, it's a crisis, you know, to heck with the, 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 the rules. Well, you know, um, last I checked, I, you know, Theranos didn't do too well in terms of, 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 you know, not following the rules. And we don't want to be another Theranos, especially during a crisis. And now in retrospect, we went live with our, our many tests. We actually brought multiple tests. And, you know, people are more now concerned about the quality of tests that are coming out there. There's a lot of pop-up labs that are coming out there and the list goes on. And now the questions of false negatives and so forth are coming on. We stand by our data. We know our test is this good and we're going to stand by that. And people have confidence. Our healthcare workers, our patients stand by the confidence that it went through at least just as good, if not a more rigorous process than what even FDA requires. And it's the same with the vaccine development, the drug development. Yeah. So going through all those steps just gives everybody more confidence in testing and the vaccines and the whole process. So, um, you know, if we don't, and just to use NAMS testing analogy a step further, the reason we're so far behind is because of the testing problems we had and getting tests that worked. So if we get a vaccine that doesn't work, we'll be even further behind. We'll have that same, you understand what I'm trying to say? The false yes. starts are more of a problem than not, ha you know, than not ha than being slow. It's better to go deliberately and carefully than to go too fast and go down a blind alley. And I think that's, that's our concern and that's everybody's concern in the field. All right, last question for you both. This is a reader, uh, our listener question from Jasmine Faratan. She asks, or she says, everyone is waiting for this to go away, quote unquote, go away. But isn't that an unrealistic expectation that it will just go away? What does that even mean or look like? So yes, I'll, I'll add, on, on to that, add on to that. What do you think? Could this be like a, the flu where, or another coronavirus in the, in the family where it could lie dormant? for a few years in one system? Could it mutate? Um, what, uh, you know, is there such a thing as an ultimate cure for this kind of thing from what you know? What's, and what's the ideal situation? Like this could be the flu, we just get an annual shot, uh, annual flu shot. Like what do you, what do you see? Um, or is it too early to tell for the uh, end of this COVID-19? Uh, the short answer is it's too early to tell, uh, but of course we can speculate and give educated guesses. I think that's what people kind of want from us. And um, yeah, I mean, currently the current coronaviruses that live in humans are seasonal and they come back every year and people make an immune response, but it, the immune response wanes after a year or two. So they become re uh, susceptible to the same virus after a few years. And the virus is also mutating slowly so that it escapes immune responses. And so there's this um, long-term relationship. We've, the human population, human race, is set up with these other coronaviruses where we've sort of established a detente. They can live in a few of us and make us sniffly and have colds, a little sick, and we'll let them change every once in a while and we're made, developed this host-parasite relationship. We don't know what's going to happen with the current SARS. The other SARS viruses and MERS 
although they keep coming out of the wild and infecting people, they seem to be leaving the human population, you know, and not maintaining a chain of transmission in humans. This new virus is different, though. It's maintaining a human chain of transmission, chain of human transmission, and it looks like it's setting up a long-term relationship with the human race. So there's a couple possibilities, and it may well be a seasonal virus like the other coronaviruses that are live in our nose, but this coronavirus lives in our lungs more, and that may be a problem. And we'll have to see if does it drift, does uh, like influenza does, does it slowly change its outer coating protein so that it escapes from the human immune response so that it can come back every year and infect people all over again? We don't know. But at least in the first round, what we hope is that um, most of the human population becomes immune, either through vaccination or through uh, asymptomatic infection. And that's one of the really important things that we need to discover right now is what's the penetrance in the population? What is the proportion of people that have been infected or exposed to this virus? We have no idea. Um, it could be much greater than we think. And if it has been a really big proportion of the population, then it's unlikely to cause a problem next fall. And we'll start to, you know, uh, it'll st we'll start to develop a more um, balanced relationship between the virus and humans, and it won't be such a dramatic new introduction. Um, but if a lot of the population hasn't been exposed and we're not immune, then next fall it could come back just as bad as it did this spring, and then we'll have a new situation to develop. But the ultimate host virus relationship is yet to be determined, I would say, and it could evolve into a more uh, symbiotic relationship. Uh, and we'll have to see, or less pathogenic relationship, not symbiotic, and we'll have to see what happens over time. And then, last word from you. Yeah, so, I mean, for the most part, I echo what Chris has said, but, I mean, speaking from the hospital standpoint, we're preparing for COVID-19 Part 2 in the fall, um, and this could be lingering for quite a while and, and through, through, uh, through till 2021. So we're continuing to bring up testing capacity and all this um, technologies and so forth to be ready. Um, you know, as the saying goes, in times of peace, prepare for war, in this case, is the war against COVID-19. And so we're bringing that up. I mean, we haven't stopped and will not uh, not stop for quite a while, all the way up to even bring our test capacity to be able to do 3,000 tests per day. We're not there yet. We don't need it. Uh, and But, you know, at the same standpoint is that uh, you know we're we're still planning and moving ahead. Things are still planning into the summers and so forth to prepare and much work to be done between Chris and I too. So we have lots of lots of planned um, projects uh, on the research side and the clinical side. And we're definitely assuming worst case scenario and trying to prepare for that. Yep. Well, on that upbeat uh, note, uh, I want to say, Chris and Nam, thank you very much for taking time out of your really busy schedules. Good luck with uh, your efforts, your testing, your research. Uh, we're all rooting for you. So thank Excellent. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This episode of The New Normal in California with Chris Miller and Nam Tran of UC Davis was recorded on April 14th, 2020. Thanks to the doctors for taking time away from fighting COVID-19 to talk with us. Thanks also to Andy Fell at UC Davis for his assistance. Always thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about how Californians are coping with the new normal. You can do that as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, our live events, 
whenever it's safe to do them again, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.